Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, time for the show. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. Two weeks ago, I began a three-part podcast on Mary, the mother of Jesus, focusing first on the Annunciation. We learned that Mary's yes to God not only demonstrated her great faith, but also her great courage. With the Annunciation, Mary was the first person to say yes to Christ and to place her faith in Him, trusting that God would equip her to serve as the mother of God's Son. Last week, we explored Jesus' birth and His childhood, coming at it from Mary's perspective as Jesus' mother, and in the process, learning about Mary's role in God's plan of redemption. This week, I'd like to examine Mary's involvement in Jesus' public ministry, beginning with his baptism in the Jordan River by Jesus' cousin John, Jesus' move from Nazareth to Capernaum, his teaching and preaching in Galilee, and his final journey to Jerusalem and the cross. So let me begin by reading from Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist, His food was locusts and wild honey, and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance? And do not think you can say to yourselves, No, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children from Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Boy, that John is a strange character. Dressed in camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist with a pouch on the side, biting the heads off locusts, looking at the people and saying, you brood of vipers. Oh my. Well, we continue. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff, with unquenchable fire. Now then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, 
And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, pause and think about what we just read. We know that Mary and John's mother Elizabeth were relatives, and we know that Elizabeth and her husband Zachariah were the only two people outside of Jesus' immediate family who understood how unique both John and Jesus were, how God had brought both of them miraculously into the world. There's a wonderful painting from 1859 by John Everett Millay, one of the founders of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, that's on display in the Tate Gallery in London. It's titled, Christ in the House of His Parents, or The Carpenter's Shop. Google it and have a look. In the painting, the little shop's floor is littered with wood shavings, and the whole scene is richly symbolic. On the wall hangs a carpenter's triangle symbolizing the Trinity. Nails lie scattered on the wooden workbench, suggesting Jesus' crucifixion. In the foreground, the boy Jesus has wounded his left palm, and a drop of blood has fallen onto the top of his left foot, overtly symbolizing the wounds of Jesus' crucifixion. Mary is kneeling on the floor to Jesus' right, comforting him, foreshadowing her kneeling at the foot of the cross. To the right, the young John the Baptist is bringing a bowl of water to wash Jesus' wound, a symbol of Jesus' baptism. John's mother, the aged Elizabeth, stands on the far side of the table, reaching out to Mary. I love the pre-Raphaelite painters, and this painting, so rich in symbolism, portrays a tiny domestic scene of the Holy Family in Nazareth, with Joseph, Mary, Jesus, Elizabeth, and John caught in an ordinary moment of daily life. And yet, it foreshadows the dramatic future events in the lives of all the characters in the painting. How much of this did Mary know at the time? How deep was our understanding? It's odd to read in the Apostle John's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 31, that John the Baptist says of Jesus after Jesus' baptism, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Well, clearly, John the Baptist did know Jesus. He was his cousin, and he grew up with him. But we have to look at John's words very carefully. The Greek word oida is the verb to know. But we can know on many different levels. John knew Jesus, as you might know a brother, a sister, or a cousin. But he didn't fully comprehend the depth of who Jesus was. Until, as we read in Mark's Gospel, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and God's voice from heaven said, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. 
With that, John knew in the deepest gut level, fullest sense of that word. He knew, he comprehended. At 30 years old, Jesus relocates from Nazareth to Capernaum, a distance of 43 miles. A few years ago, I took a group of my more robust hikers to Israel and we walked the Jesus Trail, the very same journey that Jesus walked when he left home and walked to Capernaum. We spent three days on the trail, a truly profound experience, knowing that we were literally walking in the footsteps of Jesus. But we have to ask, why did Jesus go to Capernaum? Why not, oh, I don't know, Sephora or Cana or Jerusalem? Well, Jesus spent three years teaching, preaching, and healing in Galilee. And he spent the vast majority of his public ministry in and around the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee an area that, frankly, is not much bigger than a neighborhood. Importantly, I think, the Via Maris, the main international trade route from Egypt in the south to Damascus in the north, ran across the Jezreel Valley and right along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. From the archaeological site of Capernaum, you can lob a rock onto what was once the Via Maris. So word about Jesus' teaching, his preaching, and his healing could easily move from the area around Capernaum out to the rest of the Roman world. But more importantly, Jesus had relatives in and around Capernaum. Mary's sister or sister-in-law, Salome, was married to Zebedee, the parents of James and John. Together with Peter and his brother Andrew, the family owned a commercial fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Zebedee were family. James and John were Jesus' cousins. There's a wonderful little church in Santiago de Compostela in Spain, the Church of Santa Maria Salome, the mother of James and John. It's right around the corner from the great cathedral dedicated to St. James himself. Now, we've walked as pilgrims on the Camino de Santiago three times now, following the French route, the Portuguese route, and the Silver route. Each time we arrive in Santiago, we, of course, visit the great cathedral for Pilgrim's Mass and the swinging of the magnificent Bato Fumera. But we also pay a visit to St. Maria Salome's church, James and John's mother. Well, Jesus had both friends and relatives in and around Capernaum. So we can be reasonably sure that Mary would have visited her sister or sister-in-law, Salome, quite often during Jesus' three years' stay in Capernaum. In fact, after the wedding at Cana, in John's Gospel, Mary, along with Jesus, his brothers, and his friends, travel from Cana, which is only about three miles from Nazareth, to Capernaum for the after party, where they stay for a few days, I presume either at Zebedee and Salome's house or at Peter and Andrew's house. You can read 
about the after party in John chapter 2 at verse 12. Jesus, his mother Mary, and Jesus' friends and relatives must have had quite a good time together, talking, laughing, telling stories. And I'm sure they had some of that good wine from Cana with them, too. It's clear from Scripture that Jesus drew huge crowds during his three-year public ministry in Galilee. And we have many examples of his teaching, preaching, and healing while he's there. But how was Jesus accepted? We get a hint if we turn over to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And let me read those verses to you. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now we need to pause for a moment and think about this. At the synagogue, every Sabbath, there would be a reading from the Torah, that is the Law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in a one-year period at the synagogue, you read through all five books of the Torah. And with each reading, there's an accompanying Haftorah reading, a reading from the prophets, about two-thirds of the time from the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus is the hometown boy returned, everybody's heard about him, and he's invited to do the second reading, the reading from the Haftorah. The scroll was handed to him, and he began to read, and listen to how he reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to preach good news. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. This passage from Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2 had been typically read as a messianic passage, referring to the anointed one, the one who would come, the Messiah. And Jesus takes that to himself. Well, with that reading, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, sat down in the teacher's chair. And he continued with his comments on the reading. Well, the eyes of Everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And after a long pause, everyone silent, waiting for him to speak. He said, lest they didn't understand, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And he continued his homily. Well, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? Where did he get all this? 
And Jesus said to them, seeing many disapproving, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, identifying himself as the anointed one. He said to them, surely you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, do here in your hometown what we heard you've done in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to Gentile territory. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, another Gentile. Well, with that, that's a slap in the face to the audience. All the people in the synagogue were furious. They got up. They drove him to, out of town to the brow of the hill on which the town was built to throw him off. We've visited that brow of the cliff many times in Nazareth. It's a vertical drop directly down into the Jezreel Valley. Anyone tossed off that cliff would splat down on the bottom and be dead. But he looked at them, and with authority in his eyes, he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. They parted like the Red Sea, and he went on his way. Wow. Many would have been present when Jesus spoke in the synagogue at Nazareth. Mary was present. After all, she lived there. It would have been her synagogue. But what would Mary be thinking during this episode? Perhaps she recalled Simeon's words at Jesus' presentation in Luke 2, 29-35, when Jesus was only 40 days old. Simeon said, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And perhaps, too, she shuddered at Simeon's closing words, and a sword will pierce your own soul, too. Jesus' reception in his hometown of Nazareth bodes ill. It foreshadows big trouble to come. In Jesus' day, Galilee was known as a hotbed of radical revolutionary thought and movements. The Zealots, founded by Judas of Galilee in AD 6, during Jesus' lifetime, preached armed rebellion against the Roman Empire. Their more radical offshoot, the Sicarii, were in fact assassins, frequently knifing Roman officials, officers, and soldiers. The Zealots led the great Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire in AD 66-70. Frankly, one of the dumbest moves in all of history. It led to the destruction of Jerusalem, the Temple, and the expulsion of the Jews from Palestine for the next 2,000 years. The Sicarii, the assassins, took Masada at night by stealth murdering the Romans stationed there, and they made their last stand in Herod's old fortress overlooking the Dead Sea. 
encircled by the 10th Roman Legion under the command of Lucius Flavius Silva, the Sicarii committed mass suicide rather than fall into the hands of the Romans. The men murdered their wives and children, cutting their throats, and the surviving men committed suicide. In a single night, 960 men, women, and children died at their own hands. When the Romans breached Masada's walls the next morning, they were horrified, stunned at the utter brutality. When we travel to Israel on our footsteps of Jesus' teaching tours, we sit atop Masada and we tell the story, imagining the cries in the night as blades flashed. Now, Jesus was not a zealot or a Sakari, but he was most emphatically a radical Jewish reformer living on the bleeding edge of the apocalyptic vision, as was John the Baptist. Their thinking was more akin to that of the Essenes at Qumran than it was to the zealots or the more traditional and staid Pharisees. Jesus made people feel very uncomfortable. He challenged their most closely held beliefs, and he did so without compromise. The religious leaders were not amused. Mary was very worried about Jesus. Indeed, at one point early on in Jesus' public ministry, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 3, verse 21 and 33 to 34, that Jesus' mother and brothers arrived in Capernaum to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, when Jesus learns that his mother and brothers are outside the house, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. I have to imagine that that must have hurt Mary deeply. She's afraid for her son. Imagine having a son who becomes a Roman Catholic priest and he's drawn to ministry in Syria supporting the persecuted and martyred Christians there, and there are a lot of them. And he's preaching forcefully and very publicly against ISIS and against the reigning regime. If you were his mother, might you not beg him to come home? Might you not say to him, are you out of your mind? You would be dreadfully worried about your son. And so was Mary dreadfully worried about her son. It all comes to a head, of course, in Jerusalem. Jesus went to Jerusalem on Passover AD 32 to die. And we have to admit that he did everything in his power to ensure that he did. In John's Gospel, Jesus engages the religious leaders in a heated and fierce debate. And I read to you from John chapter 8, verses 31 to 41. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, 
If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we'll be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. <laughs> I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you've heard from your father. They replied, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. And they looked at him and said, We are not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. We are not illegitimate children. The Greek reads literally, We of fornication have not been born. That's shocking, isn't it? When Mary returned to Nazareth from Elizabeth's house after John the Baptist was born and Joseph took her in as his wife, everyone in that little village of Nazareth, a village of maybe 20 extended families, a couple hundred people in Nazareth, a tiny village on a finger ridge in the Jezreel Valley out in the boondocks, Everyone in that little town knew that Mary was pregnant by someone other than Joseph. In the rural Middle Eastern culture of that day, and indeed of today as well, Mary's pregnancy would have been a scandal, the subject of gossip and derision. Mary would have been a pariah. All the women would have talked about her behind her back. Mary knew that, even before saying yes to the angel Gabriel. This had been drummed into little girls' heads from the time they could understand. I said at the time that Mary's yes was a great statement of faith, but it was also a great statement of courage. For the rest of Mary's life, and of Jesus' life too, they would both be dogged by the scandal. It even followed Jesus to Jerusalem, to the upper echelons of religious power. Of course, we all know the story that follows. Jesus' arrest, his trial and crucifixion. Mary was there for all of it. She watched him being flogged to within an inch of his life, the flesh ripped off his back and legs. She watched as the Roman soldiers pressed a crown of thorns onto his head, the razor-sharp thorns piercing his head, masking him in blood. She stood helpless 
as the crowd cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! She followed him every step of the way on the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, stumbling and suffering. She witnessed him being stripped naked, nails driven into his hand and feet. And she collapsed to the ground as Jesus was lifted high upon the cross, searing pain blinding him. Mary watched as her dear child, the little boy born in Bethlehem, the child learning his father's trade in the carpenter shop, the fierce young man teaching, preaching, and healing the crowds on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, the loving son who so adored his mother, suffering on the cross. You know, when we die and we appear before Jesus, and we all shall, and we look into his eyes and we see his nail-pierced hands and feet, and like Thomas, we touch the wound in his side, when we're with him in his presence for the next million years, we will never, ever, ever comprehend the depth and the blackness of the suffering that he went through to bring us to that place. And we will never know the depth and the blackness of Mary's suffering seeing her beloved son nailed to that cross. As old Simeon said, a sword will pierce your soul. And it most certainly did. We leave Mary at the foot of the cross, an image that we should ponder as we make our way through this next week. I had planned on this being a three-part podcast. Well, it just got bigger. Next week, we'll add part four, and we'll follow Mary through Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and Mary's role in the church that emerged from the very body and blood of her son. So until then, blessings to you all, and never forget what great students you are. Have a good week. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.